I spoke to someone between services who told me that a friend, upon being invited to church, had responded, why do I need to go into a building to worship God? Well, you don't have to, absolutely, but it is an amazing gift to hear music and to receive uh, the beauty of this place. Thank you, God. Our children are dismissed for their time of worship. Let's bow and pray. Lord, you are our light and salvation. We pray for those occasions when it is darkness around us, when we've lost the light and turned away or had other things block out the light and we don't know the saving, transforming love that reorients us to you and to life. May we this day, through gathering, through worshiping, through studying, through being a community together, listening and looking for your presence, may we be strengthened, may our eyes be opened, and may we become among those ambassadors of your love and light in the world now and always. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. We are always glad to receive new members at Highland Baptist Church. But let me be candid and say the last thing that a pastor or church staff wants in a church member is For someone to come and join our church who is a prophet of God. And let me say conversely that I have a feeling it's the same would be true in reverse. That the last thing a church wants in a pastor is a prophet. Prophets are wacky. Prophets are weird. They behave erratically and unpredictably. We like them in the stained glass windows on the sides of our sanctuary where they are quiet and safe and rather sedate, just letting the light flow through them. But in real life, oh my. There's Hosea. Hosea marries a prostitute named Gomer. Try that one out, pastor. Hosea marries Gomer to represent Israel, who's gone after other lovers. There's the prophet Jeremiah, who goes around breaking clay jars and tearing at his clothes. There's the prophet Ezekiel in our windows, who shaved his beard and his hair, divided them into three parts, and let those represent the way people would die, by pestilence, by sword, and by being scattered among the other nations Then there's the time that Ezekiel laid on his left side for 390 days. And then on his right side for 40 days to depict the sins of Israel and Judah. But not to be taught by any of them is the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah went naked and barefoot for three years as a sign of how the people were to be taken away. Try that one out sometime, Pastor. Let me just say, I feel like a rookie compared to these guys. And the next time I'm in trouble for one thing or another, I'm going to bring you in here and stand you before the prophet Isaiah's window and say, do you remember? 
It could be worse. Prophets embody the word of God by their spoken word, but also by their actions, by their lives. They call attention to themselves in order to call attention to God. To call for a radical change in the way that the world is operating. To challenge the status quo. They don't bring a sword. They don't bring a weapon. They don't coerce. They are rather vulnerable. Vulnerable. Bearing a message that can be rejected, even killed. It can be ignored. Perhaps worst of all, it can be misunderstood and misconstrued, reduced, down to something palatable and nice. I'm talking this morning about prophets because I want to remind us this morning as we look at the why of the cross, I want to remind us that Jesus himself was a prophet. He was more than a prophet, of course, but he was a prophet. His disciples looked at him in terms of the prophets. Some say you're Moses. Some say you're Elijah. Some say you're one of the other prophets. Jesus himself depicted his ministry in prophetic tradition and went on to say, a prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown. So his message and his ministry was in the tradition of the prophets. He spoke prophetically. He did his signs and wonders, his miracles, as a way to point to God as a prophet. And he brought about these wonders in order to reveal the word of God. But his ultimate act as a prophet... His way of revealing God to the world in a way that no one else could before or since is by his cross, his death on the cross. And so this Lenten season we ask, what's the why of the cross? What does it mean to say that Jesus died on the cross to save me from my sins? I learned that line from childhood, but now What does it mean? Last week I suggested to us that the Bible has several analogies to try to invite us into the mystery of this meaning. We can talk about Jesus being the substitute. We can talk about it being a a bargain that, that God makes with the devil. We can talk about it in terms of a legal transaction or appeasing or paying for a debt. But all of these efforts... All of them individually help us, but none of them individually get to all of the why of the cross of Jesus. What they do all agree to is this. That something is wrong with this world we live in. That the world as we know it has been hijacked. Hijacked. And taken where it was never intended to go. That the world we live in has been bastardized. It has been deformed. It has has been devalued. It has been destroyed. And there's a sense in which you and I are passive participants in this. And there is another sense in which we all have to admit we are co-conspirators in hijacking this world away from what God intended us to be. 
For if God is love, if God is love, then God's creation was set into motion and designed for harmony and unity and community. And so the cross of Jesus becomes this enormous wake-up call to humanity by the prophet of God, Jesus the Son of God, to show us how violence and greed and alienation and apathy and waste and all the ways that we dehumanize each other all the ways that, that the world isn't as it's supposed to be. All the ways shown in our newspapers and in television coverage about how nations are warring against nation. How they're beating their pruning hooks into swords and spears. And how refugees are left to fend for themselves. And how people in our own city are desperate, desperate. For some word of hope and love in this world of of violence and pain. How all of this rips. Rips at God's deepest desire for this world. Much like a nail would rip through the hand. And the flesh within one hand. It is to torture God. It is the human sin. It's our sin individually. It's the sin into which we were born, into this system, this selfish, violent, fearful, apathetic world that we were born into. Elie Wiesel was a Jewish teenager caught up in the Nazi takeover of Europe in the 1940s. He found himself in the first in Auschwitz and later in Buchenwald in the prison camps and many years later he wrote a graphic and sometimes even sadistic seeming autobiography entitled Night many of us remember reading it we remember of course that vivid scene where the prison guards have been offended or slighted in some way by some Jewish boy in the prison they decide that the little boy has to die for this little inconsequential deed. And so all of the people are brought out of the barracks and forced to line up in front of the gallows as two men and this little boy are hung to death. When the trap doors open, the weight of the two men break their necks almost instantly. But the little boy, the little emaciated boy, weighs so little that there's not enough weight to kill him quickly. And so he dies slowly. And the prisoners of Auschwitz are forced to walk past this little boy, his eyes still open, his tongue still pink, as they weep. Somewhere behind Wiesel, he hears someone ask, Where is God? And from somewhere deep within him, he hears the answer. There is God. He's hanging right there on the gallows. You could interpret that to mean that God is dead. Or you can interpret that to 
mean that God is with us, with us, at the point of life's deepest inhumanity, at the very point that it would seem that God is gone, God is present. And so, as Christians, we say, Jesus died on the cross to save us from our sins. And by that, I think among the things that we mean is that he shows us in his death the effect of sin torturing the heart of God and of all of creation, how all of creation has been bastardized by this brokenness of our world. It is to show us the torture of God and to awaken us, awaken that deepest part of us that says our story has to change. That we're called upon to reboot and reclaim and repent and turn this world around. And for this to happen, God enters our story in Jesus. He lives, he loves, and he suffers the torture of human fear and hatred. He was a prophet. But he was more than a prophet. For prophets speak about God or for God. Jesus didn't just speak about God or for God. Jesus spoke God. As Brian McLaren would say, he spoke God the way we might say someone speaks English or French or Spanish. He speaks God. Not that heaven was empty when Jesus was on the cross. He doesn't pray Myself, myself, why am I forsaking me? There's still more to God. But we understand that, as Paul said, God was in Christ, reconciling the world to God's self. Then Jesus is the sacred presence of the tortured God. To say to us that God's not a distant God. Cold and calculating. God's not a deal maker. God's not the divine trickster. God's not an angry and vengeful Lord. But God comes as one for us. Tortured by us. For us. But he doesn't just suffer. He's not just a prophet. He's more than a prophet. And so in his death on that cross, Jesus absorbs our sin. All of that unleashed hatred and violence and rage and fear and self-preservation that's represented in the event of Jesus dying on the cross, he absorbs it. And it's like the image I've used before of the raging wildfire coming down the hill until it hits the river and then It absorbs it. It puts it out. It defeats it. Peter DeVries wrote a book some years ago entitled The Blood of the Lamb. It's a novel about a man named Don Wanderhope. How's that for a name? Wanderhope is a brilliant man was raised in faith, but now has many questions about faith and life. He's a single parent living in New York City, raising this precocious, bright adolescent girl named Carol. Carol is the light of his life. So it comes as great heartache and great sadness when she is 
diagnosed with the advanced form of cancer. They immediately begin the chemotherapy and the radiation. It's tough on this little girl, as you well know. One of the things that she does to distract herself while she's in the midst of one of her therapy sessions is to watch old movies. She really got into Abbott and Costello. Remember them? She got into especially the, the, the movies where they would throw pies at each other. She became, she fancied herself sort of an expert in pie throwing. She would point out to her father how the first one would throw the pie, but then the second one, the big one, he would just stand there and let the other one throw the pie right in his face, and he wouldn't even do anything about it. He would just take it and almost wait for it. And then, when it was all over, he would wipe first his left eye and then his right Almost kind of a ritual, she said. Wanderhope and his daughter had been fighting this cancer for some week, walking back and forth between their apartment and the hospital there in Manhattan. On his way, he would frequent the bar that was near the hospital, stop in and get a drink to sort of boost his courage beforehand, and on his way home as he returned... But one day as he came out of the bar and started toward the hospital, he noticed St. Catherine's Church open all day long, all evening long, for people to come in and out as they chose to pray in the midst of the busy city. He walked into the church, stood in the center aisle and looked around, not knowing what to say or do. It had been a long time. But he gives out this plaintiff, desperate prayer on behalf of his beloved daughter. When but a couple days later that word came to them that the blood marrow, bone marrow report had actually come back good. In fact, they said, we think she might be in remission. They were elated, of course. He came, went home and told the neighbor in the apartment next to them, She said, oh, I'm going to bake a cake. I know Carol's favorite kind of cake. I I know how she likes it decorated. Tomorrow when you go, will you take a cake from me? Make sure that she gets the biggest piece, but have her share it with the other children in the ward. And so the next day, Wanderhope finds himself on the way to the hospital holding a box that contains this celebration cake. He stops in at the church to pray a prayer of thanksgiving but as he's leaving he runs into one of the nurses from the hospital have you heard about carol he asked yes she says i i have it's why it's so very sad to hear the news from this morning that a staph infection is going rampant through the children's ward he raced to the hospital and it said as he Opened the door to her room, one look at Carol, and I knew it was time to say goodbye. She died around 3 o'clock that afternoon. And after doing the paperwork, saying his final goodbyes to Carol, Wanderhope leaves the hospital with nowhere to go. He goes by the bar and has six or seven drinks until the bartender finally says, No more for you. 
He stumbles out of the bar and passes by St. Catherine Church. For the first time, he remembers the cake. He walks in, and there it is, still on the pew. He takes it out of the box and walks out to the sidewalk in front of the church. The celebration cake in his hand. He's standing beneath a marble crucifix that hangs over the front door of the church. Jesus, his arms outstretched. Wanderhope balanced the cake on the palm of his hand. And the pigeons around the statue begin to rustle as they can tell something is up. The writer says it was a miracle the cake reached its target at that height. And it landed squarely beneath the crown of thorns. He writes, then through scalded eyes, I seem to see the hands free themselves of the nails and move to his face. And very deliberately, with infinite patience, He wiped icing from first one eye and then the other and then down his cheeks almost in a kind of ritual with a kind of sobriety of the one who said suffer the little children to come to me and do not prevent them for of such is the kingdom of heaven. Paul says it this way. He is our peace. He has reconciled us through the cross, putting to death that hostility through it. The question for you and me today is this. Do we believe it? And by believe, I mean this. Would we bet our life on it? That he is the way, the truth, the life. Let's pray together. Beautiful God, revealed in the face of Jesus, may we see the many facets of this wondrous cross. And as we claim it as our own way, as we claim it as our symbol, may the mystery and the power and the purpose of it, the why of it, penetrate all that we have and are and do. To your glory, in Christ's name, amen.